All right, this is the podcast Finchley Place. I'm Crispy Chicken, and I'm here with... Oh, suspended reason. I kind of like that. I think that the little bit of surprise <laughs> makes it real. Um, and today we're talking about uh, basically back and forth dynamics in debates and thinking and epistemology. Uh, and Suspended is going to start us off with some quotes from a key essay. Yeah, I feel like, you know, the key phrase that I think inspired this this episode is is signal and corrective. And that phrase comes from John Nurst. Um, and he has this post from a few years back on his website, Everything Studies. Uh, and for those who don't know, John uh, is really interested in the study of, he calls it aerosology, the study of disagreement. And so almost all of his essays are just about, you know, how people end up disagreeing and why, you know, discourse gets more heated or polarized than it needs to be and how to kind of resolve those disagreements. And I think the central question of, of the signal and corrective, the essay that he wrote in 2018 is, you know, how do people who more or less agree on the details, if they were to really get into it, um, end up actually very deeply polarized and arguing completely different stances. Um, he thinks basically most people are, are pretty moderate and see both sides of most things, um, but they end up choosing a signal, a kind of dominant frame or narrative. And so he starts this essay kind of just talking about what narratives are, which they're compressive. Um, you strip away what to you feels like all irrelevant noise and leave only the essence, the underlying signal, the underlying principle. Um, you get this kind of insight pornography. Um, and at the same time, he says, quote, that noise that you just dismissed as irrelevant has other signals in it. And sometimes people will consider those signals stronger, truer, and more important. Um, and I think this is an important point that people kind of miss. It's, it's actually what frustrates me about the use of the word paradox in academia, which is this way overused term. And I think you know, people always talk about this, oh, it's a paradox. Sometimes X leads to Y, and sometimes X leads to not Y. And how do we resolve this? Um, and I think that this kind of the concept of like generalizations and narratives and indexicality really um, completely, uh, it, it makes this whole concept of a paradox look kind of silly, where what's happened is that you've generalized, um, and you've kind of rounded up in a direction, and there's always going to be exceptions. There will always be examples. He says, Narratives contradicting each other means that they simplify and generalize in different ways. Um, you know what they what the signal or the noise they pull out, and uh, we can talk a little bit now about uh, you know our friend, our colleague. I don't know what we want to call him. Natural Hazard has talked about this um, not all, at least one problem where almost everybody is willing to see uh, that um, you know that their their dominant stance or the narrative that they're pushing has exceptions. And oftentimes those exceptions can be pretty frequent or common. But the point is that most of the time or the dominant um, frame that they want you to take away bends in a certain direction. Um, and and oftentimes it it's hard to kind of figure out uh, people might, you know, think it's 45% one way and 55% the other way if they really got into it and it and small disagreements end up getting rounded up or rounded down into extreme polarization. Um, and maybe that's where we can start here. Absolutely. I, I really love all of that. And I really, really agree um, that, you know, in academia and in general, in basically people who are trying to put together uh, what you might call you know, I think we need a word for this. I don't have one yet. Like working theory, people who are trying to put forward theory that they want others to use formally and, you know, cite in some way. 
I think, have this issue where all of the incentives of that system are to make the um, the intellectual system they're putting forth, you know, the, the theory they're putting forth as simple as possible so that other people start applying it everywhere because, like, proliferation is the goal. Mm-hmm. Um, and that basically incentivizes, you know, having the um, most limited claim. And, I th- and the most limited claim, in, in a funny way, is often actually more general because it's not limited in terms of, like, you know, scientific scope limited by the evidence. It's limited in terms of you want to say it quickly and not have any qualifiers. And that's kind of weird because I think, you know, one of the things that happens is people do hide behind um, this idea of, oh, I'm just, you know, saying the most naive theory because, like, that's what the evidence currently shows and we don't have evidence for the um, the more complex version. But in a funny way, sometimes that's kind of true. But in a funny way, I think it's often misused where it's like, oh, you know, we know this theory only has kind of mild evidence this way um, in, in this direction. But we're kind of just going to state that that's what the um, that's where the signal is. And, uh, you know, I- any any future work will have to deal with the nuance. And then we kind of get stuck with these very simplified theories under the guise of, oh, I'm just, you know, making a limited deduction with limited evidence. But actually, it becomes a much larger generalization. And, you know, I think that has a lot to do with um, a lot of literal bananas work, right? Where, and like, she just had this great thread about, um, there was this study about, uh, does expertise uh, give people a sense of numbness? I don't even really remember the study very well, but she had this entire thread, which is, you don't even really need to understand the study because what it was critiquing was, look, there are a bunch of categories. You had a limited set of mechanical Turk crowd workers um, rate them. Then you chose more mechanical Turk wor- crowd workers by how well they agreed with the first set. And then you had these really weak <laughs> correlations with words. And then you assumed that you kind of can linearly add them up and get some notion of what numbness is. And it's, it, I might be using the wrong term. It might not be numbness. I forgot what the exact details are. But the reality about statistical significance and how it's used and misused is really there in which people tend to limit the amount almost of words in their claims. They limit the nuance in their claims under the guise of limited evidence, but actually it becomes generality. And that's this entire thing that I think is currently built into the system of how we create new knowledge. Yeah, 100%. And I think I think especially um, theory work, you know, falls falls into the same trap. I, you know, we can, we can start talking examples. One, one example that John Nurse gives that uh, we've actually talked about before is he says, you know, one one narrative history is determined by the actions of individuals. Another narrative history is determined by large scale economic and technological forces. And uh, most people who know theory or know uh, kind of history of 20th century intellectual thought will recognize that these are major uh, contrasting strains of thought that that really battle it out. And um, you know, maybe we can get into it now or maybe later. But I think this is why, like, the general compatibility. Uh, general compatibilism mode where of you know why not both why why not uh, accept that both narratives are are somewhat true and happening at the same time and, and try and reconcile them or at least get indexical and see in which specific situations one is more true than the other because um, clearly uh, both of those are the case that that individuals uh, do shape history in real ways and also economic and technological forces do, but where you actually kind of place the emphasis matters a whole lot. And it's actually not clear whether those frame disagreements are substantial, whether uh, if, you know, in a given example, whether uh, two people would really come away with different interpretations or they would just put the emphasis in different places. Mm. 
Another good example he gives, which I think is interesting because we've talked about cultural evolution on uh, societies who do certain things are more successful and survive better than societies that don't. Therefore, institutions and traditions are the result of beneficial cultural evolution. And then the opposing narrative, institutions and traditions arise as tools that the powerful use to oppress the weak and justice requires tearing them down. Um, and again, it seems like, you know, why not both? Absolutely. Um I have more initially to say about about the first side about this economic factors versus individuals, uh, and it, it it has really really weirded me out that it's not why not both because I feel like, you know what it reminds me of it reminds me a lot of um, Marxist class reductionism which like is interesting a lot of my a lot of people who influenced me a lot believed way more in Marxist class reductionism like not people who are alive like for instance um, Mikhail Bakhtin. Um, who does really talk a, uh, a bit about uh, class reductionism, though I think he's slightly smarter about it. But it, it still, it, it drives me kind of nuts because I would be reading these theories, these really like sociological, psychological theories of organization, essentially. And people would say things like, well, and in this situation, this person is going to do X because that's representative of their class. And I'm like, but they might not. Like, they just might not that day. There are so many factors around that. Um, and... You just don't know. And yeah. I think what's interesting is this seems like a place where like evolutionary thinking and natural selection are just so clear in that, you know, under certain economic factors, certain kinds of things are more likely or not likely to arise, right? Like just very, very simply, if there's more money in an industry, you're more likely to get more people there. And if there's more people there, often there are more smart people just out of randomness, right? Just out of the people who, and not even smart in like, I'm not saying IQ, just smart in, oh, they could invent this thing and we can't even measure that ahead of time. But just out of pure randomness, if more people are working on a certain problem or in a certain field or in a certain area or in a certain place geographically, you're more likely to get innovation there. Um, and it seems pretty clear, though, that we can't actually create that from nothing, that it does require individual action to come up with certain solutions, and that there are certain alternative solutions, right? Like, so I don't, I'm personally, and this is a little bit of a stronger claim than maybe most people are comfortable with, but I don't think the combustion engine, for instance, was inevitable. I think it totally could have been that we decided to use electricity. There are reasons why at the time it was um, in the 1800s, uh, later late 1800s um but i'm actually not that familiar with the history but my um from my reading a while ago it seemed like at the time yes they made way more sense but there was you know studies in electricity and like oh this had this like you know certain advantages and whatever but it seemed like too toyish so they didn't go with it but it doesn't seem crazy to me at all to imagine well there were a couple of scientists who happened to work on electricity earlier and actually that seemed much more promising and it had more kind of cultural backing from the right people. And then we went down that route and the world would look totally different, right? Like, especially right. if you believe that fossil fuels are driving um, like current changes in climate change. And I personally do. Then I think that that's like just almost unimaginable how different the political discourse and technological discourse would be. So I feel like there's this weirdness where there are these key factors where it's pretty obvious economics doesn't point in at least one direction, obviously. So at least to say that economic factors like would do it, it seems crazy just because where is your evidence, right? Like, how would you even know in this case? An, an economist wouldn't be able to make a decision. So why should we feel comfortable saying it comes from an economic force? Yeah, people talk about, uh, I mean, you know, I'm 
not super brushed up on all this history, but people talk about this with regards to Tesla and Edison on current and electricity, right? They kind of buying models. Absolutely. And this, this happens really, really a lot in science. And by the way, a lot of the times it ends up being kind of both. Uh, like, so, um, you know, there's always this thing about like who really invented calculus and like who perfected it um, between uh, Newton and Leibniz. And the reality is, we kind of Newton kind of won that, but like at least you know in terms of the cultural history a memory. Uh, but I'm I'm not a scholar on the issue. Um, but we kind of end up using Leibniz's notation because Newton was thinking. Well, first of all, he's a very very powerful thinker. I mean, Leibniz was too. But I, I don't know. I think Newton was kind of crazy. Um, in how much he could keep in his head. But that made his notation a little bit bad because he could kind of keep all of these weird indiscrepancies that weren't quite solved yet in his head. And Leibniz really wrote things out more clearly in a way that actually decomposed the problem in a way we now think is basically the really correct way to think about it. But there's it, there's no real one correct solution. And they do both arrive at correct solutions most of the time, and they both make mistakes too. Um, but I think the reality is we kind of give the credit to Newton mostly. Um, but Leibniz invented our notation and in some sense invented the way we decompose the problem today when we teach it to students and therefore how people go out thinking about it. Um, and it, in my view, the co competition is much more mimetic than it is about, you know, who discovered the real thing. I don't think there is a real calculus. I mean, calculus produces real answers, but there are definitely multiple ways to come to the, oh, I should really talk slower. There are definitely multiple ways to come to the same conclusion. Um, and so I think the, uh, the kind of upshot is that the mimetic game of what we think of as the truth allows for this kind of pushing back and forth, um, which uh, I think is, you know, kind of what we're, we're getting at here, that, yeah. that in any mimetic game where that's possible, people kind of will in order to side on certain fights because it's just a very natural way of doing things. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like, you know, the fact that... Um, we are now kind of realizing that, like Leibniz said, the a better frame. It seems like there's a way in which, over the long term, you know, we might eventually end up at, uh, you know, uh, the at, at essentially the path that we would have ended up had things forked differently. And there's this kind of realization. So maybe this is a short term, long term thing where there are huge effects in the short term, and by short term that can even be centuries or millennia. But in the long term, there's kind of this. Um, annealing process where uh, we can very slowly get it to the place that it would have been had we forked differently in the road back then. Um, it kind of seems so we're kind of getting onto this evolutionary epistemology idea, which I think is a big part of what we both want to talk about today. So before we move on, I just really want to quickly talk about, I think, the last couple bits of this essay, because there's some really interesting psychology of disagreement points that Nurst makes uh, about this whole signal corrective thing. One, and he does, he talks, he uses Marx as an example. He talks about both Marx and Ayn Rand um, and how their writings essentially, he says, overwhelm you with a sense of absolute clarity. This kind of uh, in the this Sitai uh, Nguyen sense of uh, value clarity. Uh, where, you know, when the noise has been stripped and all you're left with is this very clean explanatory narrative, you feel uh, like truth is on your side. And um, as a result of, you know, if you kind of picture these people uh, or different sides of these issues, people who are fighting for different signals or different narratives as engaged in kind of this turf war, um, 
there are very different dynamics, he says, depending on how you kind of anchor your claims. So an everyday disagreement, um, there is a huge difference, um, he says, between saying, quote, the market is amoral, but also, I admit, effective, versus the market is effective, but also, I admit, amoral. Um, and that these can be radically different political positions, even though in a sense they're saying the same things, depending on what is cast as the dominant. And so to him, he says, you know, quote, there's a lot of valid criticisms of how science is done, for instance, but unless you first acknowledge that science is the best and perhaps only way to get reliable knowledge, far ahead of any other contenders like religion or intuition, I'm just not going to listen. And sure, criticize modern civilization for destructive wars and environmental degradation, but not until after you've given proper thanks for everything good it's brought us. And of course, other people would take the exact opposite stance. You know, they would uh, point out that there is a lot good about modernity. Um, obviously, you know, modern medicine is very few people contest that that's a, a negative, but it's it's where you lay the stress. And as a result, he says that. A big part of, of disagreement comes down to whether it, you know, the criticism comes from the in-group or the out-group. So if an in-grouper makes a criticism of in-group ideology and they're an established in-grouper, that can kind of be safely entertained and talked about. And we can talk about the correctives or the qualifiers to the main narrative. But if an out-grouper uh, makes that same allegation, we'll oftentimes jump to its defense. And so there's this whole kind of strange psychology where he says we end up actually taking different stances depending on who we're talking to because we're playing the signal corrective game. So if we're deep in a group think where nobody is kind of questioning the dominant narrative or signal, um, we might be incentivized um, to, to take up the corrective stance. And if we're talking to somebody who is on the same side as us, uh, we might actually argue for the corrective and say, hey, you know, I'm going to play devil's advocate here. But if we're talking to the outgroup, we're talking to somebody who, you know, is fundamentally on the other side or takes the opposite signal, then we're going to fight hard for our signal. And um, there's this way in which our position is not this kind of absolute stance of our beliefs, but that our beliefs are very much relative. And they are almost this kind of strategic move in a game um, where we're trying to twist the stick. And... There's this great Bordeaux quote that uh, I can quickly read where, you know, he kind of talks about this too. He says, he's talking about Marx. Actually, this is great. Marx kind of forms this great uh, thread of an example through our conversation. But he says, um, you know, when uh, we're always living in a post-Marx world, this is my words now, we're always living in a post-Marx world. We can't even conceive of a pre-Marx world. Um, the situation that Marx was responding to when he wrote is already gone. That ground in which his work was a figure has vanished. And it vanished in part because he wrote something that responded. So he updated the kind of discursive state, the, the game state, you could call it. And Bordeaux writes, Since works are always to someone or an impression of aggregate someone's, it exists only in relation to the world before it existed. Um, this explains why writers' efforts to control the reception of their own works are always partially doomed to failure. One thinks of Marx's, I am not a Marxist, if only because the very effect of their work may transform the condition of its reception, and because they would not have had to write many things they did write, and write them as they did, resorting to rhetorical strategies intended to twist the stick in the other direction, if they'd been granted from the outset what they are granted in retrospect. 
So I, I think this is kind of a, a key idea. And, and we talked earlier, you wanted to call this torque epistemology. And I like this a lot, that you're, you're trying to twist, um, twist the stick essentially in the mud in the other direction. And that these beliefs or these arguments are not, they don't exist in a vacuum. They are moves in a discursive game that has a long history and a state. And that people understand that current state and try and manipulate it and move it closer towards their preferred position. Absolutely. Um, first of all, just listening to that was so delightful. There's so much there. And so one thing I want to say first, just so everyone kind of can see this, is torque epistemology and evolutionary epistemology, which is kind of a play on, you know, instrumental value, i.e. you'll end up keeping what helps you survive. And that becomes whatever, you know, your foundation of epistemics is, uh, or sorry, epistemic foundations. Um, and, uh, the one I think the way it's related, so you can think of kind of torque epistemology in general in the simplest case as you know you're pushing back and forth on a single axis, and this can have evolutionary characteristics if you're in a situation that naturally selects for being somewhere on that axis or having a certain value on a knob, right? So if it turns out, um, you know, so for, for instance, um, in uh, science, often you're trying to measure the value of a certain constant, right? Like, like the gravitational constant. Mm -hmm. And it might be that you have different estimates that go back and forth and are bigger and smaller. Um, and this was, you know, a big thing with like the Higgs boson, for instance, in uh, in physics and stuff. I don't know if there was a torquing here, but you could imagine a situation in which, you know, first you overestimate it, then a bunch of scientists say, no, 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 it's much smaller. Then it actually turns out that they were overcompensating. And it doesn't always have to be, you know, that they were overcompensating. Maybe they were actually undercompensating and you need to twist it even further. Um, but you can just imagine it as this kind of uh, tug of war back and forth. Um, now, one thing to be careful about is that many situations have a moving target, right? So even if that you, you know, it's evolutionarily selected for, and it doesn't have to be genetic, right? It can be mimetic evolution um, for a certain place on the axis. It could be that that place is changing and it's changing faster than your optimization to getting to the right place can handle. And I think um, a lot of the times, actually, there's some kind of reflexiveness to this. Um, and so like we were talking about fashion, and we can get into that. But I think, you know, one way this happens is there's a new there's a new trend, and people start to pick it up. But as enough people start to pick it up, right, there's an anti inductive property that it becomes less fashionable if everyone is doing it. Um, mm -hmm. And so you're never going to reach this point where everybody is fashionable by definition. But you still kind of have this target epistemology of, you know, people in different groups are going to be saying that's fashionable, and that's not. And they're kind of going to be pushing and pulling towards, oh, is this the trend? Oh, oh, no, 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 we have to push back. It's really not the trend. And things become retro eventually, right? And it really does come back. Um, and I think one of the, this kind of anti-inductive um, uh, like situation with twerking is very similar to the, the Red Queen hypothesis in evolution. Mm -hmm. um, and the Red Queen hypothesis, for those who don't know, is basically to say that like, you, know, you need to keep evolving in certain situations basically in order to differentiate yourself um, for various reasons, because maybe like, you know, your competition is mimicking you or whatever, but it comes from this uh, quote from, I think, uh, Through the Looking Glass, yeah, which goes, it's from the Red Queen. Now, here you see, it takes all the running you can do to keep in the same place. And what's going on here, right, is that different keep creatures want to keep their place in the hierarchy of, you know, population and who's eating who and who's getting eaten by who. Um, by whom, uh, and in order to do that, they often need to continue to differentiate themselves, much like uh, the butterfly example that Suspended has written a lot about, which is, you know, a butterfly can 
create certain markings on its wings to show that it's um, poisonous. But other butterflies can copy this. And then it's kind of a fake signal for them. And it stops being genuine for the really poisonous butterflies. And the really poisonous butterflies get eaten. And the animals that eat them might die. But it's still kind of this issue where the poisonous butterflies need to invent a new technique in order to show that they're poisonous because the, the old technique is no longer working. Um, and so yeah. I, don't, um, I don't think it's a version of torquing um, because it's not really on one axis. It's just trying to find a new signal. Um, but I think this Red Queen um, issue, like, or the, you know, the hypothesis in evolution, but the general notion of having to change in order to basically keep up with the new world, which has anti-inductive properties, is very common. And actually, that's one of the reasons you see a lot of torquing because a lot of the times, so like, there are lots of things, for instance, the place of religion in government, which, you know, it's a little bit contentious. Um, but I think the reality is, if you go back 500 years, almost everybody thinks that religion should have a lot to do with government. And you can disagree with them. But the reality is, at the time, most places were dealing with, first of all, almost everybody believed in a god. And most places were pretty homogenous in what god they believed in. But there are lots of counterexamples for sure. Um and I think, you know, that drove this idea that religion should be um, part of government. And today, you know, people hold their religious beliefs much, much less tightly. And there are a lot more atheists or semi-atheists or agnostics. And so where you want to be on that axis of, oh, how much should religion be involved in government is different. It's in a different place completely. Um, and so we wouldn't want to kind of, there's no one place on the axis that really necessarily makes sense or is best because it's a function of also the individual humans in that society. So I think there's this interesting interaction between evolutionary and epistemology in which it's a kind of natural selection for knowledge that ends up being useful to people or encourages people to think in a way that helps them in a given situation and makes them, you know, like able to get, um, complete their goals. And this uh, torque epistemology in which people tend to push back and forth in order to kind of get things towards the place that they want. And they often purposely overcompensate in order to kind of uh, essentially hedge their bets um, because they don't think they can get it into the exact right place. Or maybe it's even advantageous to them to um, get things to be a little bit wrong and then be able to correct it um, or not even be able to correct it and use the, um, the error somehow. Uh, and there's this kind of red queen hypothesis issue of but things are always changing. And sometimes, actually, you just need to keep changing. And so that actually encourages torque to go back and forth on the axis, because the actual point where you want to be keeps changing often yeah. as a function of where you are on the axis. Yeah, 100%. Um, you know, I wish I wish I had read up on um, Hegelian dialectic a little bit before this, because I actually don't True, know where it comes too. down on all this. I don't know too much about whether... Um, you know, he thinks that because obviously there's there's some strong resemblances here. So if you think of kind of evolutionary epistemology as being this process where people propose a narrative signal and then other people have a correction and that correction slowly gets incorporated or even becomes its own kind of dominant and then eventually gets synthesized. I mean, you have this thesis antithesis uh, synthesis uh, structure. And I don't actually really know whether he thinks this um, helps us approach truth um, or whether that this is just kind of a pattern. Um, that that is continually roaming. Um, it. Uh, Wait, let me I, just interject uh, one yeah. thing there because mm -hmm. I think this is actually a case of signal corrective of torque epistemology, um, which is the reason I haven't read Hegel personally mm -hmm. is because everyone I ask who has read Hegel tells me not to read Hegel. And at mm -hmm. the same time, I wonder if that's an overcompensation to his overuse in various aspects of philosophy and pseudo-philosophy 
uh, and actually, you know, the dial is going to be pushed back towards people need to understand Hegel in order to understand these dialectics properly. <laughs> yeah. Um, gosh, so there's so many things I want to say here. Let's see. Uh, you brought up a lot of, a lot of really interesting stuff. Um, let's see. So one, I think is if, if this in situations that aren't roving, where there is some kind of, um, I don't know, eternal truth isn't really what I want to call it, but in, insofar as there is some objective reality that we global, slowly global move optima, to. Global optima, maybe. Global optima. That's a good, yeah, way of putting it. Um, then I think you have a situation that like somebody like uh, Popper or Deutsch, the critical rationalist, would call evolutionary epistemology. And this is how science works, where we kind of are continually undergoing paradigm shifts and, and reinventions and modifications. Um, we have a dominant theory, but then there are some exceptions where in some cases it fails, or in some cases there's weird stuff we can't explain. And eventually that weird stuff adds up and we hit a breaking point where we have to kind of rewrite the whole frame and come up with a totally different paradigm in order to explain the full set. Um, and uh, I think uh, it's, you know, it's funny you bring up the the Carol, uh, Lewis Carroll Red Queen hypothesis. I've never read any Lewis Carroll, and yet I feel like I could almost reconstruct his, his complete works just because he gets used so many times for metaphors and analogies, um, whether it's the map and territory stuff, whether it's the Alice effect, um, the Red Queen stuff. Um, I know there's that scene where I think, you know, the, the, there's a sign pointing one way, but you have to go the other. I mean, I just see these examples come up so many times and referenced, which is just, just goes to show um, how powerful good examples are, especially when they become shelling points because they're widely read um, in fiction like Lewis Carroll was. Um, ton of power there. Um, as for the the kind of fashion stuff or the kind of continual adjustment where there isn't um, a global optimum or there isn't something that can eventually be, you know, settled on. Um, I think it's, it's interesting to think through some of the some of the motivations for for why this happens and why the fashion cycle happens. And obviously, one of those uh, motivations is signaling and distinction. Um, and you know, there's this this world in which I think, from a status perspective, um, if you're thinking about why are people contrarians, I think one one good reason people are contrarians is because uh, it's a lot more profitable um, from a prestige, financial, almost any really perspective of, of capital you can think of to be a leader of 5% or a small minority than to be a follower in the 95%. And so people, I think, who are able to prop up alternative narratives, um, there are active incentives for that um, happening. And I think there's different frames that we can employ to think about this. So I think one interesting way that we could think about all this is that this is uh, an almost evolutionary selected mode of social cognition, and that there are that these kind of social incentives and stuff help move us towards the truth by continually qualifying um, dominant signals, so that we increasingly renuance generalizations and um, and then maybe the other frame is just that you know there's this this kind of selfish incentive of of seizing status. Um, maybe both can totally easily coexist where it both works at kind of the group selection level and the individual selection level um, epistemologically. We are um, general compatibilists, we so are, I'm going to yeah. say yes. Um, and I think the other thing that I want to inject there is something that I don't have a good name for this yet, but I've been thinking about it in a lot of our conversations for the last few months, which I, I might, okay, I'm going to say a name you would purposely hate just to cause you to invent a new name, which I'll call it... Um, 
the paradox of the open market, which is that in any situation where you don't have good metrics for choosing between things, being in a smaller group, being unique is advantageous because you at least cause some metric to say, oh, well, you, you know, you're at least, you know, optimal in some sense or not like, you know, not optimal, but specific, right? Which causes a metric to distinguish you. And, you know, if I have, let's say I'm, I actually have the problem a lot. I want to buy an app for something. So for instance, I'm recently want to buy an app for screenshotting better because I'm taking a lot of screenshots of this mm. um, anime attack on Titan that I'm writing about. And uh, there are so, so many utilities for this, hundreds of them. And I have literally zero way to distinguish them. So things that are totally unimportant become load bearing in that, um, in that shelling way, right? Where it's like, well, there, when, when, I, when none of my n- normal metrics for competency work, I have to find some way of making a choice because at the end of the day, there's no button, download all of them, right? I have to just go and decide on one. And when that is the case, being in a minority in that sense of like, oh, I can kind of distinguish you from the rest yeah. actually ends up being a huge advantage. Yeah. I, uh, I think it's Drethelin um, on Twitter who has talked a lot about this with respect to dating and how, you know, becoming a niche is, you know, even if you only capture 5% of the market of the dating market in terms of, you know, being desirable, uh, if you're strongly desirable to that 5%, that's actually a lot better than being moderately um, or mildly desirable to the 95 um, and the math can pan out. And um, you only need one, right? That's the weird, you know, a lot of these situations, you're not looking to actually capture the entire market, which is something that a lot of market thinking, I think, gets wrong. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and I think in, at least in, you know, in, in discourse, uh, one, one, one way that we could call this, or one thing we could call this would be, I guess, like, uh, hipster intellectualism, or, I mean, it's essentially the contrarian impulse. Um, I was listening to the very bad wizards podcast the other day with Tamler Summers and Dave Pizarro. And uh, I think it was was Tamler who was talking about how he had changed uh, his position on free will to really emphasizing um, that we do have free will because he tends to be a contrarian. And, and these days people are really down on moral responsibility, really down on, on free will and really up on kind of structural determinism. Um, and they do, they talk about it, you know, as being like being a hipster philosopher. But I kind of think that's... Uh, how a lot of these things work. Um, and I don't know, I don't, I don't, I'm curious to your thoughts on whether this is a personality archetype that you and I, and maybe Tamler, um, have these just kind of contrarian impulses and, and there's a percentage of the population that leans this way, or whether you think it's more environmental and this is something that almost anyone can flip on, um, if, uh, they're in the right situation. Yeah, that's a really interesting question. So in order to answer it, I'll just give a little spiel about my feelings about like uh, nature versus nurture. Um, I'll (laughs) keep it pretty brief, which is basically to say that um, I do think, um, you know, genetics has something to do with behavior. But I basically think in terms of actually selecting for these things, we usually don't have the ability, except for in very, very specific cases, um, to capture the difference between like, genetic and like, you know, very, very early childhood stuff. Um, And so what I'll say is, I definitely think the level at which you kind of tend to do this has like is kind of solidified pretty early on. And I definitely experienced that at least personally. um, And I've seen a lot of other cases and you can actually look, there's some evidence for this um, in the literature, but I'm not sure I actually buy a lot of the studies. Um, 
uh, for instance, so like when I was really, really young. Oh, actually, you know what? I'll tell you like the youngest conversation I remember. Like, I, I don't even remember. I have a video of it with my grandpa. And um, I'm like a tiny baby. Like, I've just learned to talk. Um, my grandpa's like, uh, Crispy, say yes. And I'm like, no. And he's like, come on, say yes. And I'm like, no. <laughs> and he's like, all right, say no. And I just look at him. And I don't say anything because I'm caught, but I'm not going to give it. Um, and so I think there's, I think there's definitely a place where it just basically you learn a strategy and you're you're going deep on that strategy. That said, I think that's a little bit overstated as to how much there's just contrarians um, because there's a few things. One is when contrarians get together, you know, they look very similar and they're kind of being contrarian about certain things, but they do tend to get together and they agree with each other about how wrong a lot of other people are. So I think that is a weird effect that's that's hard to compensate for and, and kind of shows this is a more faceted issue. The other thing is that even though a lot of people are less contrarian, I think the reality is they then tend to be in groups that are less contrarian and they themselves may become contrarian within that group for those group dynamics. And so I think it's a lot like, I, you know, I'm going to bring in actually a machine learning idea, which I, I try not to do too much because I know a lot of people um, don't think about this, like don't, aren't that familiar with that literature. But the basic idea is that, you know, when you're optimizing a machine learning model to do something, right, there are all of these levels of optimization and you basically do most of the work you push the um the model into a different space a parameter space um in the beginning because you're basically fighting all of these massive battles about how the construction of a network should be but then you're kind of slowly doing less and less and it, you can kind of think about it you know we call it hill climbing where there's a massive hill but on the hill there are all these smaller hills and on those smaller hills there are all of these smaller hills um and you're trying to get to the very top of the smallest hill, right? That is actually the top, the the tallest, smallest hill. Um, but basically, you know, within a given hill, there are all of these same dynamics that you would see on the macro hill. And I think that's very true with contrarianism, where the group you end up in, usually, you know, just the fact that it exists, if it exists for a long time, is set up in a way where there are going to be contrarians for the group. And that's part of basically what invigorates the, the group, right? Like the diversity of uh -huh. ideas that's getting getting across. And so I think in terms of human society as a whole, there is a significant um, a kind of nature effect, uh, even if that's, you know, very something very early childhood-ish or if it's genetic. Um, but I think in terms of kind of micro-sociology and micro-political organization, almost everyone has the ability to do it because we kind of self-select for being with similar people. And then that gives us, that makes the activation energy, you know, about the same across all of these little groupings. Yeah. Nature. So nature and nurture obviously is a big example of signal corrective stuff um, in terms <laughs> of, True. Uh, I feel like, uh, I mean, maybe it's just that my subculture has changed. Um, but I feel like even 10 or 15 years ago, um, it was just like everybody knew that it was nature and nurture. Um, and I feel like now, even if people pay lip service to that, um, talking about the nature side, um, I mean, Freddie DeBoer, we've kind of talked about this. I don't, how do we pronounce his last name? Is it DeBoer? That's how DeBauer? I would pronounce it, but I don't know if I'm doing it right. I should listen to some kind of audio of him and probably where he introduces himself or someone else does. Yeah. You know, I mean, and he, he writes about, um, you know, why, why these different fields aren't paying any attention to genetics, um, or even speculating that genetics is a cause. 
And it seems like part of the, the, the puzzle there is about fields and about um, different discourses. So um, there obviously are a fair amount of fields who take genetics to be the dominant um, or take, you know, I mean, evolutionary psychology would be, would be a big one there. Um, and then there are fields that don't. Um, and I guess there is an open question of how, how okay it is for these uh, fields to specialize or to focus on one dominant or another, as long as at the macro level, if you're thinking about social cognition, that there is um, at least both sides being worked on. Um, it does strike me. I mean, there's this great uh, Camille Poglia quote uh, from a book forum interview in 2005, and she's talking about, you know, coming up in Yale in the literary department in the 60s. And she says, I was in college around the time when new criticism, which adores explication of text and all this close reading, was in decline. I would say it was in its height and its founding in the 30s and 40s, but by the 50s, it had become very derivative. It was practiced by these sort of third raters, people without the real talent and erudition and prose style of the ones who had founded it in North America. And so I was in revolt, I thought, against it in my college years. And I think that the fashion metaphor is valuable here because there is this whole kind of either, I guess capital landscape is maybe the best way to put it, because it's not just status, it's not just citations, it's not just money or grant opportunities, it's all these things. We can just call it capital, but there's a capital landscape um, where things get you know asymmetrically divvied up, and there's a kind of conformity landscape of when people adopt and early adopters versus innovators and it does seem there's this information theoretic thing where, you know, a difference that makes a difference, unless you're actually intervening with a corrective to the signal, um, then you're kind of only doing marginal returns. Um, you know, there, there's the 80-20 rule where a lot of kind of the initial theoretical work, the very first pieces that uh, establish a discipline or a framework kind of lay out a lot of the valuable stuff. And then there's many decades oftentimes afterwards of just kind of applying or slightly extending and, um, and big correctives, I think get a lot of airplane. I think if you look at a lot of the people who are seen as the major thinkers of let's say the last century, um, maybe before that, I'm just less familiar with that intellectual culture. Uh, most of those big players uh, ushered in big time correctives to the dominant signal. And oftentimes, I mean, inevitably in this kind of fashion um, uh, chronology, inevitably those correctives, which were once scrappy underdogs challenging uh, Goliath, you know, they become their own Goliaths, just like Christianity once was, you know, a persecuted, uh, you know, religion where, you know, it was Jesus preaching these uh, kind of rebellious things. All, uh, all rebellion is eventually institutionalized. All insurrection eventually becomes the, the institution that is, you know, doing the oppressing. And, um, I, I think all that kind of those dynamics are, are very present here. Agreed. And I'll just say, man, every time I like read Camille Paglia, I'm just like, what a clear and bold tone. I love that quote. Um, yeah, no, I think that's absolutely right. And I think one of the confusing bits for us, right, is that we have this narrative of science kind of steadily reaching truth. And I do think that's true in certain cases. Um, and or let's say in many cases to a certain extent, especially like I really do. I, I think it would be crazy to argue, we, you know, don't know significantly more about physics than 100 years ago. Um, but I think at the same time, just because you apply 
I would, I'm going to say the scientific method. I'm not comfortable with that phrase because I don't think that there is a unified scientific method in a very meaningful way. And we can get into that another time. But just because you apply culturally what has become, you know, kind of the idea of the scientific method to something does not make it a place in which finding a global optima is even possible or meaningful. And I think there's this weirdness that certain kinds of, like I'll say torque epistemology is chasing something that can be found and certain kinds aren't. And I don't think there's an a priori way to distinguish between these very clearly. Um, and there is kind of an, a middle case where there, you, you know, you are searching for something real that you can kind of finally find, but um, it's changing fast enough. And, you know, the question is whether you, your torque kind of epistemology ever gets fast enough to actually capture it. Um, and I think, you know, psychology is actually more in that position than it tends to believe in that there's this belief that like, oh, you know, psychology is figuring out like real, like kind of more objective aspects of things, right? Like this is just kind of a way that humans tend to deal with things. I'm definitely pretty skeptical of that claim for most psychology research, which I feel like there are all of these cultural factors that you're not going to disentangle. And you know, it could be there aren't enough cultures on earth to disentangle them properly into an objective framework of how humans work, right? Like you would need a certain number of cultures to compare between in order to establish cross-cultural um, standing. And it's not clear that that's even possible on earth, especially now with kind of globalization and how much cultures influence each other. So I think there's this issue of we don't know exactly what we're chasing. And that's actually a big part of the argument. Mm. And I think a lot of these arguments end up being about how actually well-founded something is. But the weird thing is that basically in order to, you know, institutionalize something, as you say, you know, like the rebels become the institution most of the time. And I think the reason for that is because it's hard to continue to coordinate a rebellion. You really like, even if you want to, you basically become an institution that says it's coordinating the rebellion and it becomes kind of iffy what's going on. Um, but I think the the kind of upshot is that the people who decide that something can be found tend to form institutions, whether they're right or wrong, or whether there isn't even a meaningful notion of right or wrong. And so we tend to see as representatives of given fields and given practices and given goals, um, the people who think that that goal or practice or field is meaningful and is finding something more definite. And the critique, you know, the people who would critique would never like make an institution of critique just to keep on critiquing. That would just kind of be a sad place to be. That's actually not true. There are some cases of this, but it's relatively rare. Um, and so I think there's this issue in which, you know, in the current age of information, we're inundated with knowledge who are pre of from people who are at least writing as if they're very sure that what they're saying is kind of a meaningful and more universal stance than it might be, because that's the voices we're likely to hear from who would have invested the time. Yeah, I so since we're, I guess we're getting close to the hour here, we're gonna have to start wrapping up. Um, but I would love to talk takeaways um, from all this, uh, maybe some some lessons or or ways uh, of being conscious of these problems. Um, so one one strikes me um, as just being kind of suspicious of instincts towards contrarianism, and I feel like especially the kind of people who we hang out with and who listen to this pod. Um, have contrarian instincts. Um, now, that's not what, you know, I use instincts there colloquially. It doesn't have to be a, a nature-nurture debate again. But um, uh, they, they lean towards dissent. Um, 
And I, uh, I think part of the problem there, you know, there's this, especially this problem in that, in that Camille Paglia quote, there's, she talks about how by the time it had, you know, new criticism, which is kind of this formal approach to textual meaning, um, had reached her in the sixties at Yale, um, you know, maybe 30 years after it had really started cropping up in the thirties, um, it, you know, it was being practiced by third raters. And I think you see this a lot where there's, uh, we've actually, I don't know if we've talked about this on the pod before, but, um, we've definitely talked between us and written a bit about this telephone effect, right? Where, um, any kind of idea gets, any compelling idea gets kind of picked up by hucksters very slowly. And, and as it kind of enters the, the main discourse, um, it gets slowly adapted and modified and exaggerated by people who have agendas to do so. Um, so for example, like the versions of, um, you know, the Eskimo 50 words for snow, um, idea that I think Franz Boas, um, originally, uh, observed, you know, I don't think it's quite 50 words. I don't even think Franz Boas argued there were 50 words for snow. I think he just argued that, you know, there are more, more terms in a given language. And, uh, if, uh, the people speaking that language have a good grounded context for using, um, a broader, uh, vocabulary that kind of more precisely carves differences that are relevant. Um, and, uh, and, and this idea kind of gets exaggerated slowly as it, as it moves through the intellectual circuit from the innovator to, you know, Ted talks and eighth grade biology classrooms. Um, it gets increasingly kind of simplified and, um, and then people, of course, they receive this very simplified watered down version of the original idea, um, which is passed on to them by, you know, quote unquote, third raters. And then they rebel against it. And they don't actually realize that the thing they're rebelling against is much more formidable um, than than the kind of watered down version they've received. And so I think maybe one takeaway here is just being slightly more skeptical of that impulse. And I think you know the kind of rationalist emphasis on steel manning uh, is is one approach to, to solving this or, or ameliorating this. Because if you're always trying to steel man, that will help you get back to the kind of original, stronger kernel of an idea that uh, has undergone a lot of transformations before it reached you. Um, I, another example of this actually that is relevant because John Nurse and I um, wrote, wrote a collaboratively wrote an essay a few years back about this, but a lot of the um, insights of, you know, post-structuralism and post-modernism um, folks like Judith Butler um, have become more or less ridiculous in their current form as they get passed around, you know, liberal arts campuses, but in their original forms are actually very strong and formidable and, and compelling. Um, and there are these, these, you know, distortions like in our understanding of the word performativity where it's meant in a very kind of narrow sense of daily enactment and then becomes this kind of um, cartoon version 30 years later when it, you know, waters down and trickles down to undergraduates um, where it just looks like, oh, well, gender is something that you just dress up like a costume every morning and you can choose your gender just on a whim. There are kind of these silly um, extensions that I think are politically motivated often and how they get watered down. But uh, anyway, so that's that's one. I think the other one, I'll just bring this up quick because I've been going on for a while. But when it comes to Torque epistemology and lag, um, 
uh, you know, Bruno Latour has this great essay um, about theory and he, you know, he talks about how he and the post-structuralists, you know, it, it, the essay is from 2004. It's called Why Is Critique Run Out of Steam? He talks about how the post-structuralist critique of science is, quote, one war late. Basically, that the kind of ground that they responded to, that they were a figure or, you know, a, a corrective to the signal of was this kind of unquestioned mid-century belief in um, science and that their complication of this eventually kind of yielded this replacement dominant um, that's almost institutionalized. Um, I, I don't know how, how true that is maybe, but um, the a kind of new regime and that in the kind of modern era, because it has taken so long for this post-structuralist critique to kind of creep through into the mainstream, it is now lo- no longer appropriate. The world has changed and they're one war late or 50 wars late. And there's that great literal banana tweet where she says, uh, let me find it. She says, every seemingly innocent fragment of information is secretly plotting how to escape its context and cause trouble, uh, which is amazing, but just kind of talks, you know, sheds light on this way that when the figure loses its ground, when a corrective loses its signal, which it's grounded against, or any kind of intervention in a dominant ideology, any kind of rebellion becomes stranded and has to kind of stand on its own and can't be understood in the full light of the game state that comes before it and that it's a move in an intervention in, uh, it, you know, it causes a lot of trouble. Um, and I, yeah, maybe that's the, I think the second kind of big takeaway is that it's important to carry your ground with you that um, presenting the context to which you're responding in a discourse um, and putting that up front uh, really helps people kind of understand the real light in which your critique or your argument should be understood because you're you're advancing this kind of information theoretic difference um, to the existing game state. And if it, that difference is stranded, uh, it can be really perverted or it starts looking very perverted and can become its own institution. Yeah, that's beautiful. And two things to add to that that are, that are just really addendums are one i think an easy way to um think about this that you kind of hinted at is the idea of negative space in the visual arts right and that you know if you move the foreground figure onto a background where it's almost invisible then you just don't see the point of the original painting right the background 100%. is part of the image and i think you know people understand that visually but it's it's very true epistemologically probably possibly more true even in some sense uh, i don't think more is necessarily meaningful I actually was going to bring up literal banana too. I mean, surprise, right? But uh, <laughs> which is our hero philosopher? It's true. Um, I interestingly, I, I uh, gave some essays um, for my mom to read um, from literal banana, and what my mom said. Uh, so you know, in the beginning of I think uh, uh, was ignorance a skilled practice. Um, uh, literal banana is talking a little bit about, uh, you know that, you know, on bullshit, um, and sometimes bullshit is load-bearing. And my mom asked, well, but, like, which bullshit is load-bearing? And it's Mm -hmm. funny, because I feel like that pointed to me exactly this issue, which is, like, it would be such a mistake to try to make a classification, like, objectively, and start saying, okay, this kind of thing is bullshit. And I feel like that's the ultimate instinct, that you want to start archiving things into boxes immediately as you see them in order to understand them, and that's not necessarily a problem if you hold those kind of loosely. But I think the key issue, right, is that in order to understand what kind of bullshit might be load-bearing for a system, you have to understand the system much more. And it has almost nothing to do with the bullshit. 
And I see that, I think that's, you know, really key to how torque epistemology functions, which is a lot of people are basically more arguing about the ground than the point, but they're arguing it through the point. And I think that's difficult for people to see because they tend to make references to the point rather than the ground, as you're kind of saying. Yeah. Yeah, 100%. Um, I mean, I think this also, this ties into, there's this total Twitter phenomenon where, you know, people will pass around um, this kind of imperative um, or this, this uh, you know, you uh, you owe it to yourself to be more selfish. Uh, stop thinking about what others want, uh, blah, 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 blah. And, you know, there are lots of people for whom that is great advice. There are lots of people who constantly sacrifice their own desires. There are lots of people who are constantly so worried about what other people want and other people's interests that they lose sight of their own. Um, 100%. But there are also clearly people who uh, <laughs> could do with the opposite advice. And um, there's this, yeah, this contingency, I think, to almost any corrective, right, where it's, it's a, you can't tailor it. Or sorry, you you rather you have to tailor it because if you start making generalizations, and this is such a classic literal banana point here, to, uh, but once you start making generalizations, um, you really end up in trouble because the reality is that uh, you know maybe the person who made that that viral tweet in the first place, uh, maybe she exists in a community where it feels like in her small group of followers. Um, this really is kind of the dominant pathology is this self-sacrifice of desire, um, which Andrea Longchu calls uh, femaleness um, in her great book, Females. Um, but, uh, but obviously, uh, once that tweet escapes its local context, you run into big problems. Should I, uh, should I, do you think it's appropriate to read that Andrea Longchu quote here? Or do you think Absolutely. it's not Absolutely. I love it. All right. And I think, <laughs> you know, wh- 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 I, I guess our listeners will just have to deal with it. All right. So this is from Females of Concern, uh, Andrea Longchu's 2019 book. Um, and it, it's a really uh, beautiful text. So she, she writes, uh, Any good fem- feminist bears stitched into the burning bra she calls her heart that tapestry of qualifiers we use to tell one another stories about ourselves and our history. Radical, liberal, neoliberal, socialist, Marxist, separatist, cultural, corporate, lesbian, queer, trans, eco-intersexual, intersectional, anti-porn, anti-work, pro-sex, first, second, third, sometimes fourth wave. These stories have perhaps less to do with what really happened than they have to do with what Frederick Jameson once called the emotion of great historiographic form. That is, the satisfaction of synthesizing the messy empirical data of the past into an elegant historical arc in which everything that happened could not have happened otherwise. To say, then, that these stories are rarely, if ever, true is not merely to repeat the axiom that taxonomy is taxidermy, though it cannot be denied that the objects of intellectual inquiry are forever escaping, like B-movie zombies, from the vaults of their internment. It is also to say that all cultural things, Valerie Solanus's scum manifesto included, are answering machines for history's messages, at best only secondarily. They are, rather, first and foremost, occasions for people to feel something, to adjust the pitch of a desire or up a fantasy's thread count, to make overtures to a new way to feel or renew their vows with an old one. We read things, watch things from political history to pop culture as feminists and as people because we want to belong to a community or public or because we are stressed out at work or because we are looking for a friend or a lover 
or perhaps because we are struggling to figure out how to feel political in an age and culture defined by a general shipwrecking of the old beautiful stories of history. And uh, what's I think really great about this, she goes on to kind of connect the alt-right to, um, to TERFs and to also rad femme um, and radical feminist ideology as this kind of form of trolling, which to me feels essentially about correctives to signal and about twisting the stick in the other direction, um, twerk epistemology. You know, she's writing about Scum Manifesto, which is Valerie Solanus's text about killing all men. You know, she writes it and then she goes and shoots Andy Warhol. Um, and, you know, obviously I think a lot of people, uh, especially maybe rationalists or people with rationalist inclinations, another way to, to call these people, which you've self-identified as, as literalists, you know, people who kind of take uh, stances and beliefs that, that humans espouse at their face value and equally problematically in a vacuum rather than as a move in a game. Um, when people see kind of views and beliefs um, and arguments this way, I think they're misled. And, you know, they would look at something like Scum Manifesto as, as this kind of hideous text um, that's deeply misandrist. And on one hand, this is true, it is. And on the other hand, uh, you know, Long Chu writes, Generosity is the only spirit in which a text as hot to the touch as Scum Manifesto could ever have been received. This is, after all, a pamphlet advocating mass murder and what's worse, property damage. It's not as if those who expressed their disappointment over the tribute's cancellation did so in blanket approval of Solanus's long-term plans for total human extinction, or her attempted a murder of a man who painted soup cans. But rather, this was a text that was emotional, that was angry, that was a move in a game, and that was trying to provoke that should be considered trolling the same way that something like 4chan um, should be considered trolling against dominant ideology. And that the only proper way to understand these texts is with a spirit of generosity. I totally agree. And I think, think that that's a beautiful way of thinking about it. I'll just add one thing, um, which will be my final thing, which is I think a lot of the reasons why I am who I am personally is because all the criticism that teachers gave to the class I took his personal criticism, exactly in this literalist mentality, which, you know, I, I think is my inherent instinct, even though I try to think about things way more pragmatically these days. Um, and I think there are, you know, that's a, obviously a very naive case because I was very naive and I still am in many ways. But I think there are a lot of cases where people can't tell who the audience is or can't tell what the different messages for different audiences are in a text. Um, and maybe it's not even clear. Maybe the author doesn't know. And that has a lot of effects on how things um, happen. And I think, you know, Andrea Longshu just does a beautiful job of explicating this case, which I think is, I think she's spot on. All right. Do you want to do the the final kickoff? Anything, uh, final thoughts? What's the, uh, do we do a little motto slogan? What's the deal? Oh, oh yeah. We're, we're, <laughs> we're going to do it. Don't worry. Which is, <clears throat> I'm Crispy Chicken. And remember, if you only remember what you're arguing against and not what you're arguing for, you're already wrong. All right, uh, I'm suspended reason. Remember that beliefs, arguments are moves in a game and not beliefs in a vacuum. <laughs>